Good morning, everybody. I just morning. Thank you. Sorry, it was a bit school-like, wasn't it? Waiting for a response. Um, I was just thinking on my way in this morning how it never the, the goodness and the sweetness and the encouragement of being together never grows old, does it? Every Sunday morning, rain or shine, once we get into this building and we're together, it's such a great encouragement, and it's so good. So good to look out on all of your faces for us to come and gather around God's word now together as well. Uh, what a privilege we have in doing this. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. We're returning this morning to our series in Colossians that we began uh, midway through last autumn. And this morning we're going to be looking at Colossians 1 verses 12 to 14. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Uh, but as we read, I'm going to read from verse 9. Uh, the title I've given to this morning's message, and uh, it'll become, become clear why as we get into it, but uh, I'm calling it Inexhaustible Fuel for Thanksgiving. And it should come up on the screen uh, in case you want help spelling the first word. I had to try a couple of times, but there you go. Inexhaustible Fuel for Thanksgiving. And we're going to read from verse 9, but we're going to particularly look at 12 to 14 this morning. And so, writes Paul, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And then our verses for this morning, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful passage. Let me, I want to start this morning by uh, introducing you to the, if we can have the next slide, Isaac. I don't know if you can see that. The Happy Self Journal. Uh, this is not something I personally received in my stocking this Christmas, but I do quite like the bright and sunny colour. And what this is, is... A gratitude journal. And gratitude journaling has apparently really taken off. Uh, it's really become more and more popular in recent years. Uh, and most often in these journals, amongst other things, people are encouraged to write down three things that they're grateful for each and every day. And maybe you've heard of this, maybe you've come across one of these for yourself. Uh, the reason I share it with you this morning is not because I'm trying to promote it, I'm not on commission. Um, this one especially, I think, has some, some other unhelpful elements in it, so I'm not recommending it uh, in particular. But I simply want to suggest that I think the Apostle Paul most definitely got there first. Paul started gratitude journaling a long time before it became a commercial hit online. And he did it in his letters. And the passage we're, spending, we're going to spend our time focusing on this morning gives a clear window into a, a portion of Paul's gratitude journal, into some of the things Paul was most grateful for. Three things, in fact. 
And we'll get to what they are in just a few moments. But first of all, let me just quickly remind you, let's remind ourselves of what we saw last time that we were in Colossians, because it was uh, back at the end of November, so it was a fair few weeks ago. Uh, From chapter 1, verse 9, as we read this morning, Paul begins explaining to the Colossians what it is that he's been praying for them. And what he prays, what he prayed in a nutshell, is that they would be filled with a Christ-exalting knowledge of God's will that would in turn lead to them living out Christ-honoring lives. And from verse 10, he he began laying out for them four key characteristics of what that Christ-honoring life looks like in practice. That they would bear fruit in good works, that they would grow in the knowledge of God, that they would grow in in endurance and patience, and finally, that they would overflow with thanksgiving. And it's to that final thing, that final characteristics of, of, of thankfulness and thanksgiving that we're turning again this morning to explore more of what Paul has to say about it in verses 12 to 14. And it seems to me to be a fitting place for us to begin a new year. We're we're sort of a week and a half in now to 2022. And while there is certainly so much that lies ahead of us this year, in which we really don't know what God's plans are for us individually and Uh, together as a church in 2022, one thing we can be certain of is that it is his will for us that our lives would be characterized by thanksgiving throughout this coming year. That's not only Paul's prayer for the Colossians here, but it's what he tells them again two chapters on from here in uh, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, he writes again about God's will for his people. And he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Thanksgiving, we can be sure, this year and every year, is God's will for us. It is meant to be one of the central hallmarks of a genuine Christian life. But as we mentioned in passing last time we were in Colossians, uh, Thanksgiving isn't just something that springs up from nowhere. Nor is it something we're meant to just dredge up from inside ourselves. That There's no hint of searching for the Thanksgiving hero inside yourself. Anyone remember that song? M people from the 90s. That was a great song. But that's not what Paul's doing here. We're not searching for the hero, the thanksgiving hero inside yourself. If you're not feeling very thankful today, Paul's not about to give us five self-help lessons on how to make ourselves more thankful. And that's because the fuel for Christian thankfulness doesn't come from looking inside ourselves. The fuel for Christian thankfulness comes instead from looking outside of ourselves. It comes from focusing on the gratitude igniting good news of what God has done in Christ for us. From from remembering all of the blessings that he has lavished on us in Jesus. And so that means if we want to fulfill uh, something of God's will 
for our lives this year. If we want to keep on growing in giving thanks in all circumstances, the place we must focus our attention is on Christ and on God's great plan of redemption through him. Redeeming love must be our theme, as the old hymn writer William Cowper once wrote. And that's precisely how this morning's passage is going to help us. Because what Paul does in verses 12 to 14 is just remind us, remind the Colossians and us, of the sheer incomparable greatness of God's redeeming love for us. He basically lays out here a great stack of spiritual kindling and firewood for the life of thanksgiving that he's praying his readers would pursue and enjoy. These three verses are, in essence, uh, and an sort of an inexhaustible stockpile of spiritual fuel for thanksgiving, hence the title of this morning's message. And the first piece of fuel that Paul gives to us, the, the first of these three reasons he provides for giving thanks to the Father is the reminder that we've received a glorious inheritance. And our three points, they should come up on the screen today. There we go, so you can keep track of where we are. Although I was thinking that depends on Isaac keeping track of where we are, so it's all on you, Isaac. First of all then, the first reason for thankfulness, we've received a glorious inheritance. Do you see that there in verse 12? He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, many of us, I'm sure, will have heard uh, those anecdotal stories over the years of people who had been gifted a great inheritance, maybe by a distant relative or friend, but who knew nothing about it. And so, not knowing the wealth that belonged to them now, they continue to live and behave as those who had very little. Have you heard those kind of stories? We might have heard two of those who perhaps were told of the riches of their inheritance, but for whatever reason, they still continued to, to live and lament and complain as if they had nothing. And perhaps we hear those kind of stories and we think to ourselves, well, fancy receiving the promise of such great wealth and riches, but still living in misery and poverty and need. I'm sh I would sure live in the good of any inheritance someone chose to entrust to me, we think. And yet I wonder if, in fact, the case, it is the case that we all at various times and in various ways fail to live in the good of the inheritance that God has promised to us that God has said now already belongs to us. I know I, I failed to do this. One of the key ways it, it shows itself in my life, unfortunately, is through a spirit of grumbling and a distinct lack of day-to-day -day thankfulness. And so verses like this one, verse 12, are vital for reminding us of just what we have received because we are prone to forget this verse reminds us of just what we have to be continually thankful for. So, what is this inheritance that Paul is talking about? This inheritance that belonged to the Colossians and which equally belongs to each and every one of us who are Christians here this morning. The first thing we could say about it is that it's a word that's full of Old Testament significance. 
It's, it harks back all the way to the early chapters of Genesis to God's great promise of an inheritance to Abraham. A promise that Abraham and his future descendants would one day be God's people, living in God's place and enjoying the blessings of life under God's rule. Now initially, of course, that inheritance promised to Abraham began to take shape in a very localized and temporal way as Abraham's descendants were led through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, into a physical portion of land. And there they settled and they enjoyed the riches of the land. They lived under the rule of at least some godly kings and God was with them in their midst in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And yet it was also clear all along that 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 wasn't the lasting inheritance that God had really been promising to Abraham. That what they'd received in Canaan was just a taster and a pointer forward to the true inheritance that God had in store for his people still to come. The real inheritance to which all of those Old Testament promises of God were pointing is in fact this inheritance that Paul is now saying belongs to you and me. And he calls it the inheritance of the saints in light. That word light speaks of its surpassing glory and goodness. It speaks of the fact that it's far superior, far better than all of those Old Testament shadows that came before it. That that it's not a fragile and a perishable inheritance like the one in Canaan that ultimately got ruined and destroyed by the sin of the people who received it. This time it's an imperishable one in a far better land and kingdom, in the kingdom of light, where sin itself can no longer threaten or harm it or rob it of us, rob it from us. It's the better country, the heavenly homeland that Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham and Sarah were still waiting for in Canaan, and that's why they carried on living there in tents. It's the hope laid up for us in heaven, Spoken of earlier in Colossians chapter 1. A glorious spiritual inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's an inheritance that ultimately is going to be revealed to us and for us in the future when we're finally welcomed home into a brand new creation. Where we will live and enjoy life forever with God himself and all of his people there. And yet, and yet the fuel that Paul is laying down for our thanksgiving here this morning is not just what awaits us in the future, because he's also speaking here in the present tense. Even now, he's saying, this inheritance is ours. Even now we've received a down payment of it. Even now we are children of the light. 1 Thessalonians 5, as we live today as God's holy and redeemed people with God himself dwelling among us by his spirit. And all of that, all of this, might just begin to give us a bit of a problem as we think about it because it sounds almost too good to be true. I mean, come on. 
How could we? How could I possibly be worthy of such an inheritance of this? How could I be worthy of sharing in the inheritance of the saints in light? We, we think to ourselves, there must be some mistake here. This can't possibly include me. Because how could I possibly qualify and be fit for such a great inheritance? And Christians have often struggled with this. Even the, the great evangelist C.S. Lewis struggled with doubts about whether he would just be allowed to walk into this heavenly inheritance without having to endure some kind of purgatory first to make him fit for heaven. But what he, and sometimes perhaps what we, seemingly forget in those moments of doubt and despair is who it is that qualifies us for such a glorious inheritance. Because we don't have to make the grade ourselves to receive this inheritance. It is God alone who can qualify us to receive it. That's what Paul says. He says, it is the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, we're going to hear more about how he's qualified us when we get to verse 14. But for now, let's just dwell for a moment. Let's just stop and think for a moment simply on the fact that God has already perfectly qualified us. This, This fact is just incredible. In almost every other aspect of our lives, we think of qualifications as being something that we have to earn for ourselves. We sit exams to earn qualifications that in turn give us entry into jobs and positions of honor and responsibility. But here, when it comes to the most important entry exam of all, the only one in fact which really matters and and on which our eternal well-being hangs, it says here plain as day that it is God who qualifies us to enter in. It is God who has sat and passed the exam on our behalf. It is God who gives us the status of saints and of holy people. It is God, not our own moral efforts, nor an imaginary purgatory. It is God who makes us fit for such an inheritance. You see, the bar for receiving this inheritance is unimaginably high, But it is God who lifts us easily over the bar so that we might boldly enter in. And because it's God who qualifies us for this inheritance, there is nothing and no one who can remove this status and this inheritance once it's given. There is no power in all of the universe that can question the credentials of those whom God himself has qualified for heaven. It's no wonder then that Paul points to this glorious inheritance as fuel for thanksgiving. Verse 12 alone has enough in it to fuel an eternity of wonder, love and praise in the hearts of those who've been saved and who have been qualified by God for this gift. And yet that's only the first little coal, well not little coal, the first unimaginably big coal that Paul gives us to put on the fire of our thanksgiving. He's not willing to stop just there. The second reason he gives for thanksgiving is in verse 13. Where he tells us, is our second heading for this morning, 
we have been delivered into the kingdom of God's Son. We've been delivered into the kingdom of God's Son. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Just listen to the contrast there as, as Paul describes those two kingdoms, these two domains. It's, it's so easy, I think, to look at the world around us and we, we perhaps look, look at history or we watch the news and we can imagine that the, the world is divided into a great many different empires and rulers and kingdoms and domains. But what this verse makes clear is that ultimately there have only ever been two kingdoms at work in the world. And they could not be more starkly opposed. One of them is what Paul describes here as the domain of darkness. Which already, I think, sounds pretty terrible just in those words. But it only becomes more terrible when we consider what else the Bible tells us about this dark domain in which so many people, sadly, still live their lives. It is the place where Satan has been allowed for a time to rule and hold sway over human hearts. It's the domain in which Ephesians 2 verse 3 tells us that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us once lived in this realm of darkness without God and without hope in this world but God has delivered us just as he once delivered his his people Israel from physical slavery in Egypt so now he has delivered us from an even greater spiritual slavery to sin and Satan and all the powers of this dark world the light of the gospel has pierced into the darkness And once and for all, delivered us from its deadly clutches. Now, to have been delivered from that in itself is amazing grace to us. And taken even on its own, it would provide us once again with endless fuel for thanksgiving. And yet God didn't stop there. He didn't just rescue us and drop us off in no man's land leaving us without a home and a place to belong. No, Paul tells us he delivered us out of darkness and transferred us into a whole new kingdom. And again, just just consider Paul's choice of words here. Could Could there be a better description of a place than the one that Paul gives here? The kingdom of his beloved son. Could there be a better place to live than that we no longer have a tyrant ruling and reigning over us like we did when we lived cut off from God in the domain of darkness nor are we left just to rule over ourselves which was always the greatest lie that Satan ever told us anyway that true freedom could be found in being our own kings and gods no God has delivered and transferred us all the way out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son In the words of one commentator, he's taken us from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, from guilt to forgiveness, and from the power of Satan to the power of God. We have been rescued from a rebel kingdom to serve the rightful king. And what a king 
he is. Literally, Paul writes here, he is the son of the father's love. God the father loves his son. This is the son with whom he says he is well pleased. And God has given his much beloved son to be to us our forever king. Now just think about what that means for us. First of all, we have a king who is utterly delightful. After all, he's the one in whom the father himself eternally delights. And so we can be certain that in this king, we too can find immeasurable, unending, eternal delight. In his presence, the Psalms tell us. In his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But not only that, because our king is the beloved son of the father, once we enter into this kingdom, astonishingly, we too are loved by the father with the same measure of love with which he loves his son. That's the nature of our salvation. That's the nature of our union with Christ. So that whenever we read of the love of the father for his son throughout the scriptures, It speaks now also of the love the Father has for us, for all those who have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. So this kingdom we've been brought into is truly the the best uh, and the best possible place imaginable. It is literally a kingdom of love, a place where God's beloved Son sits on the throne and where God loves all those who live there, just as he loves his son. Now granted, just like the first one is with our inheritance, we still await the day when this kingdom will be revealed in its fullest glory. But again, Paul's words speak clearly here of a present tense reality as well. We have been delivered, he says. We have been transferred. We have already entered the kingdom and moved under the benevolent rule of God's beloved son. And what that means for us is that on the most ordinary of days, as well as on the most difficult of days, we wake up each morning, we go to bed each night, already delivered once and for all all, from the domain of darkness, no longer dead in sin, but alive in Christ, no longer without hope, but with the surest hope, no longer without God, but with God in this world. Every moment of our lives now, we already have a home. We have a place and a people to whom we belong. We have a king who knows us and loves us as his own. And our citizenship is already in his kingdom. And even while we will still inevitably still experience many of the lingering effects of the darkness of this present world, uh, suffering and sickness heartache and sorrow, and sooner or later, physical death itself. None of it can ever threaten to take us back under darkness's rule. Christ is now already our king and our protector over every single moment and over every single corner of our lives. And that's Paul's second inexhaustible reason for thanksgiving, that we have been delivered into the kingdom of God's Son. The third and final reason he gives for thanksgiving this morning is this. We've been redeemed with our sins all forgiven. Maybe 
As we look over the verses we've seen so far, there's always this running question in our minds, how could this be so? How could we have been saved into these things? How was God able to, to deliver us into the kingdom of his son and qualify us for such a glorious inheritance? How could this possibly have been achieved? And it's in verse 14 that Paul finally tells us how. In God's son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what is redemption? What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, it means to be liberated and set free through the payment of a price. And the most prominent Old Testament, Old, uh, Old Testament example, of course, was God bringing Israel out from their slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And their redemption out of Egypt was costly. They had to be redeemed through the blood of the Passover lambs that were sacrificed in their place so that they could go free. And that was truly a great redemption. And it's one which God's Old Testament people never stopped praising God for and uh, remembering together. If you, you just read through the Psalms and look for how often the exodus out of Egypt is mentioned as a reason for thanksgiving. But the redemption that Paul is now talking about in Colossians 1.14 is from an even greater tyranny than that of Israel enslaved in Egypt because we were, all of us, once slaves to an even more terrible master. We were slaves to sin. And we were even more utterly powerless to free ourselves from its deadly tyranny. Left to ourselves, no amount of self-effort and self-improvement or religious devotion or good deeds could ever have made the smallest scratch on the chains of sin that bound us. We were utterly helpless and powerless to save and redeem ourselves. But God saw us in our guilt and in our desperate plight. And amazingly, he sent his beloved son to pay the price of our redemption. And what a price he paid for us. Just as our enslavement was immeasurably worse than what the Israelites had experienced in Egypt, so too the price that had to be paid for us to redeem us was immeasurably greater too. Christ himself, as we know, came to be the ultimate Passover lamb. Nothing less than his atoning blood was required to redeem us and free us from our sin. He gave his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Peter 1 verse 18, Peter tells us, tells his readers, you were ransomed, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so that is how God could qualify us, you and me, sinners that we are. This is how God could qualify us for such a glorious inheritance. This is how he could bring us into the kingdom of his son, by paying a great price for us. We have been bought with a price. Our redemption was costly, and at the heart of what he purchased for us, Paul reminds the Colossians, was the forgiveness of our sins. 
Christ paid the price for our sins. Christ took sin's penalty on himself. He endured God's wrath in our place. And as a result, we sit here this morning with our guilt and sin washed all away. God has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, and we sang it this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As he says in Isaiah 44, verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. I have redeemed you. And so whatever sins we have committed in the past, whatever sins we commit today or in the future, God has already put them all away. He has cancelled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Never again will God count our sins against us. Not if we have turned from our rebellion against him and placed our trust in his son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All our sin and guilt has been removed. And in this, again, there is even more inexhaustible fuel for thanksgiving. All the mighty deeds that God has done for you and I in Christ if we have placed our hope and trust in Jesus. What a source of joy and thanksgiving these things can be to us every single day. Whatever else might happen to us this year, nothing can change the fact that we have received, first of all, a glorious inheritance. Nothing can reverse the fact that we have been delivered into God's, into the kingdom of God's Son. Nothing can overturn the fact that we have been redeemed with our sins all forgiven. Now there are then, I think, just two things for us to ask ourselves in response to all that Paul has laid out for us this morning. First of all, are these things that Paul describes in these verses, are they things that we can each personally thank God for? Have these things been given to you? Not do you deserve them or are you worthy of them? None of us are. But have you recognized the seriousness of your sin and your own need of redemption? Have you responded to God's offer of rescue and forgiveness through Jesus? That's the first step on the road. That's the getting on point. Buying the, uh, the, the sunny-looking thankfulness journal is not the getting on point for a life of real thankfulness. Here's the first step on the road the on-ramp, to a life newly filled with inexhaustible fuel for thanksgiving. It is asking God to save you. And then all of these things that we've been talking about this morning will become, in the blink of an eye, things that belong completely and assuredly to you as well. Gifts of God that once received can never be taken away. And once we're sure we've done that, the second question, I think, we should ask ourselves in light of what we've heard is this will we like Paul go on praying to be freshly filled with a knowledge of God's will in Christ will we say along with William Cowper redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die 
Will we, with the Spirit's help, keep on picking up these gospel coals day after day after day to to place them repeatedly into the fireplace of our hearts where they can warm us and cheer us and shine their glorious gospel light upon us, illuminating for us more and more of the, the kindness and the goodness and the mercy of God's great love for us in Christ. Thanksgiving is not only one of the hallmarks of the Christian life, it is also one of its greatest blessings too. There is great joy to be found in being thankful. And God in his great kindness has provided us with an inexhaustible storehouse of fuel for our thanksgiving that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, continually giving thanks to him. So, Let's thank him together now in prayer and then we will stand and we will sing and we will continue our thanksgiving together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us so much to be thankful for, that there is inexhaustible fuel for thanksgiving stored up for us in the gospel. Lord, we pray, would you help us to grow in gratitude, to give thanks to you in all circumstances. Please help us to eagerly appropriate more gospel firewood each day. Not not just for ourselves, but for others too. May we, like Paul, pray for each other and talk to each other often about the glorious inheritance, the kingdom and the redemption that are ours freely and fully in Jesus. And Lord, we pray, may our ever-increasing joy and thanksgiving, even in the face of trials and difficulties, cause others to ask about the hope and the gratefulness that is in us. And may we, as a result, point them to the hope that is found in you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.